Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, this will probably be, you know, roughly a 50, maybe 55 minute presentation. And we'll have time uh, for questions at the end. We'll monitor questions as you type them in and, um, and circle back at the end of the program to answer any of them. Um, so today, uh, we're just going to be four of us presenting. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more of just a high-level moderator, and um, my other three participants here are going to be a little bit uh, more involved and detailed on the substance. Um, so to go around the horn here, I'll introduce our guests. Um, our first speaker and guest is um, Andrew Kelly. He's co-moderating this panel, um, and he's um, a co-chair of the Commercial Leasing Committee at the BBA. Um, Andrew is a partner at Rubin and Rudman, and he focuses his practice on representing landlords and tenants in commercial lease transactions. So Andrew will kick it off for us in a minute here. Um, then we'll hear um, in and out during the presentation from Andy Denton. Um, Andy is in the insurance business. Um, he's the director of commercial lines and the manager of the commercial lines department at Dillon Gibson. Um, Dillon Gibson is an insurance and risk manager and firm based in Massachusetts, and they advise clients on a wide range of business and asset types. And his team works basically as a liaison between insurance companies, agents, and clients. So very happy to have Andy here to give us the insider perspective on a number of things um, that I think we as attorneys sometimes tend to gloss over or not fully understand. Um, and our other guest today is Natasha Winter, who's an attorney at Dane Torpy with a real estate litigation mm -hmm. focus. Natasha has experience defending insurance companies and insured parties in a wide range of civil litigation matters, um, including general liability and insurance coverage claims. Um, so the way we're going to structure this program today is we're going to basically come up with a hypothetical commercial lease negotiation, which Andrew Kelly is going to help walk us through. And that's obviously going to bring up all sorts of insurance questions and potential risk issues that will need to be managed and thought through. Um, Andy and Natasha will weigh in with some um, perspectives on risks and litigation issues and sort of the process for involving an insurance advisor to help walk the clients through um, negotiating that particular lease. And then towards the end of the presentation, um, on the uh, idea that the lease is fully signed and that uh, the pr property is income producing through the lease, um, the landlord party will seek to finance uh, that property with a commercial lender. And I will kind of, with Andy, walk through some of the insurance issues that could come up on a typical real estate financing. Um, so to kick things off, uh, I'll turn things over to Andrew Kelly to get us started. Andrew? And you are actually on mute right now, Andrew, so <laughs> a good start. Auspicious. Yeah, it's a good start. That's the that's the best way. Um, thank you, Greg. Uh, so, yeah. So, um Insurance and leases. And I think I'm going to just start off just briefly. I'm going to touch on the various types of insurance and I'll talk about basically the, the why. So uh, typically, landlord is carrying property insurance, form of all risk, and uh, commercial general, general liability insurance. Typically, the landlord is requiring the tenant to carry. Uh, property insurance, general liability insurance. Oftentimes you'll see um, automobile liability insurance. Depending on the use, there may be some sort of environmental insurance. Then it's doing any alterations or build out, builder's risk. Um, you'll see oftentimes statements about requiring tenants to carry workers' comp insurance, at least in the level required by the state. Um, and in many instances, business interruption insurance. So lots of insurance in play and and why? Right? Well, on the landlord side, um, a very basic answer is the lender, the, the holder of the mortgage is going to require the landlord to carry insurance for obvious reasons with regard to property insurance. The, the lender has an asset and they want to have protection. And in the worst case scenario, if, if there's uh, a total loss, have proceeds that they can use to, um, to pay back the loan. General liability insurance, fairly attenuated risk that the, that the lender would be sued for an accident that occurs on the property. But, um, and this, you know, we'll, we'll touch on this theme later, 
Um, generally, the lender wants to make sure that the landlord maintains itself as a viable business entity, if nothing else. And uh, if you've got exposure and liability there um, in some catastrophic form of, of injury um, that's not insured, that could impair the, the landlord's ability to function. So again, the lender's protecting its, its interests and its investment. Same thing on the landlord side of all these insurance obligations that they have with regard to the tenant. Um, they want to make sure that that the tenant has uh, coverage to make sure, make sure that the tenant remains a viable business entity um, and that they're protecting um, the various components of their property. And uh, it's a way of it's a way of mitigating risk. So you know, it sort of leads into the 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 concept of leases overall. Um, oftentimes, people describe them as as uh, you know, it's a complex contract, an allocation of rights and obligations and risks. And you know, it's it's here. Obviously, we're dealing with insurance and risk. And I think a very neat way of looking at very simple and elemental, but maybe something that you might gloss over is insurance. Right at at its core, at its heart is paying a third party company, the insurance company, to assume the risk of loss. Um, and so that's that's really, I view that as sort of fundamental to, to, to what we're all gonna be talking about here, which is, well, why are we doing that? Um, and obviously one component of it on a business aspect of it is to make sure that we have losses covered. Um, and also I would say, as a way of a peacekeeping measure between the landlord and the tenant to make sure that they're not at each other's throats all the time about trying to find ways to pay for losses, basically. Um, in, in, the, in the world of known knowns and known unknowns, we don't know what risk, we don't know what damage, if any, work will occur, but we know that there are risks out there. And thank goodness that we have insurance that we can go out and pay for to cover those risks um, if and when the situation arises. So that's just a very sort of broad overlay. And, and um, without sucking up too much more air, I'll turn it over to Andy. And, and I think he'll, he can talk to you a little bit about, about what he sees uh, on his side of the business. Sure, thank you, Andrew. We really want to uh, discuss the involvement of the insurance broker or the insurance advisor in the process. And obviously setting up a lease, uh, we're often pulled in while the lease is being formulated. Uh, that's the optimal way to approach it. We certainly have also been involved in situations where the lease has already been executed. Again, the first is optimal. Uh, that would not be counterintuitive. It's best that we get involved early on so that we can steer the process to most benefit our client, whether our client honestly is the landlord or the tenant. Um, if we can steer that process, we can make sure that there are no surprises, and that's what we're trying to avoid. If the lease has already been executed, the role that we play is a little bit different. We really have to come into the process and make adaptations in the insurance program uh, of our client to make sure it meets as best we can the terms and conditions of the lease. We certainly don't want to put a, a client in the position of breaching a lease by not complying with an insurance requirement. So that's a little more complicated because it may require negotiation with the carrier. We may be having to go and get uh, changes made to the insurance policies. We may have to add conditions add endorsements to the policy to try to bring it into compliance with the lease. So, you know, commonly it's best if we can be involved early, but if we come into a circumstance where the uh, lease is already executed, we can quite often make adjustments. It's just that there may be surprises. The client may be surprised by the fact that they've got to go out and perhaps purchase some more coverage. So best if we know early rather than late. Now, there were some things that I was going to talk specifically about. Um, one of the things that is really uh, common, or, or these would be common lease considerations, uh, the first thing is that uh, 
the insurance policies, the uh, particularly the liability policies that we deal with, a lease is given uh, insured contract status within uh, the context of the liability form CG0001, which is the most common business liability form. So we don't have to do anything specifically to get a lease to fall under the terms of the insurance policy. It is given insured contract status. Now, other types of contracts that we run into, and this is off topic a little bit, but other types are not insured contracts. You know, we see that obviously in the world of contracting, we would have to make uh, provisions for those types of contracts. But again, a lease is an insured contract. We do run into waiver of subrogation commonly, very frequently. It is a, a standard provision within contracts. Uh, and so we have to deal with that. And that has to be done via endorsement to the existing policy or an endorsement that is already on the policy. We deal with primary and non-contributory requirements. This is a circumstance in a lease where uh, one party wants the other's party, uh, the other party's insurance to be primary, and then the first party, their insurance becomes secondary. Can be done quite readily. Requires an endorsement usually to an existing policy to provide that uh, condition. And then cancellation provisions. We see uh, requirements within leases commonly. Uh, the most common probably is a 30-day cancellation provision with the carve-out of non-payment being 10 days. You very often can't get away from the 10-day non-payment carve-out, but 30 days for any other reason is usually uh, easily arranged and can be easily uh, included in the insurance program that we're talking about. Um, other specifications that we're starting to see, and these are really uh, more common now than even two or three years ago, uh, we're seeing higher umbrella limits. Obviously, as Andrew has indicated, everybody wants to make sure there's enough insurance. So we're seeing higher limits of umbrella being required. We're seeing pollution uh, commonly required. If there is an exposure, it's usually mandatory. If there isn't, it still can find its way into leases. We're seeing uh, tech E&O, technology E&O coverage, and cyber liability. That is getting to be a real common requirement. And that can surprise a party because they may not carry that. And that may be a, a relatively expensive um, buy for them. Um, we're also seeing conditions for claims made contracts where you have to purchase extensions to go beyond the lifetime of the lease. That's getting to be fairly common. So these are some of the things we're seeing, um, and, and the expectation is that many of them are going to become very, very common in the future, um, particularly cyber. I would caution everybody to be alert to cyber and to tech E&O. That's probably the one thing that can be very surprising and can be expensive. And so when we see it in a lease, we try to get out early, try to get indications for the clients to make sure they understand what the costs are going to be. So really, those are the things that we run into most commonly. Not sure if I've left anything out, Greg, but those are the things that we're uh, looking at very closely now. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. I think even just knowing that leases have this kind of special insured contract status under the typical uh, form of um, insurance policy that a business will probably try to obtain mm -hmm. is just helpful to know. Um, and, you know, I think Andrew can get into this a little bit more, but you definitely all have the experience of maybe as attorneys bracketing the insurance provisions of a lease or any other type of contract that we might be negotiating and kind of deferring to the client to run it through with their risk advisor or their insurance agent or whatever party they're mm -hmm. working with who could help them on that. But sometimes, you know, it's good for the attorneys to get ahead of it a little bit more. And we all know that occasionally, Andy, as you described, sometimes the client doesn't end up following through and some clients are more sophisticated than others or have more resources than others, um, checks and balances. And uh, every now and then, I, I have heard the scenario of six months after something signed, the client coming back, are we supposed to do this? You know, we just had our annual meeting with our insurance advisor. We don't have this type of coverage or we don't have these, these limits. And uh, they basically need to buy it on their own because they're not going to go back to the other contracting party and try to say, oops, I, I bogeyed, I, I need to renegotiate this provision. That's, that's not an optimal situation to be in. Um, but I think we are going to get into waivers of subrogation in a little bit. Um, and that is a issue that I think confuses every younger attorney and probably a lot of partners and more senior attorneys as well. And they just don't want to admit it. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and I think some of the other, I think one concept, Andy, that you brought up with us before is 
the ambiguity is the enemy of any clear and brisk kind of allocation and trying to avoid ambiguity and drafting. Um, and uh, attorneys know this, but it can be hard to draft precisely if you don't really understand what the insurance framework is. And you, you may be inclined to just try to budget and you know, maybe a lot of us have been in the situation where, you know, something like an HVAC handler, it's kind of my example, uh, was supposed to be maintained by one party, maybe insured by the other, owned by the other party. And when you get into these different tiers of ownership versus maintenance versus liability, um, then it really becomes unclear who is supposed to uh, call their insurance carrier and get insurance proceeds to pay for the damage mm -hmm. first. So I think going to the next section of our, our presentation here, we'll get into kind of the process of negotiating the lease. So Andrew, do you want to um, kind of give us your thoughts on when you're negotiating with, a, in this case, the tenant about uh, you know who's responsible for what? Sure, yeah, and absolutely, I guess echoing what 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 you and what Andy were, were talking about, <laughs> as an overarching principle, irrespective of the provision of the lease, ambiguity is something that we always try to avoid. Um, because that's that that doesn't serve you know it's best to slay the dragon when you can and, and not not punt on it um so uh yeah unfortunately even though it sometimes is um more work up front um if you see something as a as an attorney and you look at it and you say wait a minute something doesn't make sense don't leave it alone um yeah, so chase it, chase it down because it will. Um, it may not. It may never come back to haunt you. But if it does, you don't want to sit there and say later, "Oh my goodness, um, this was an ambiguity that I recognized and that did not pursue." So, um, yeah, I think that when we talk about negotiations of provisions and leases and in with regard to insurance, um, you have. Part of the part of the challenge can be sometimes how a lease is organized. Um, as you go through the process, you learn that that each section um, part of part of what you're doing as a as a lawyer is is keeping track of all of these sections and how they interrelate to one another. Um, insurance usually is its own section. And fortunately, you'll oftentimes have waivers of claim and subrogation concepts. I know which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. Will be located in the insurance provision, and, and oftentimes indemnity will be located in and around that. Um, oftentimes, for whatever reason, uh, casualty will be dealt with later in the lease. Insurance is in section four, and casualties in section seven, or or what have you. Um, and those those two provisions in particular are very interrelated and, and need to be tracked uh, appropriately. So when you're you're negotiating, you, they're, they're, my experience isn't that the, there tends to be a great degree of, of pushback as to what type of insurance the tenant is going to carry. And from a tenant, oftentimes you know a tenant will will want the landlord to represent that they're carrying insurance. Well, as I said, that's usually dictated by the lender, um, but it's not usually um, a, a great source of, of of negotiation in terms of 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 getting the landlord to carry the insurance because they, as I said, they're often they're almost 100% of the time, unless there's no loan, uh, there'll be uh, lender requirements. But what you do want to see and make sure when you're negotiating are what happens in the event of casualty in terms of who's got what obligation to uh, reconstruct or rebuild and matching, making sure that that obligation matches what you've got in the insurance provision. So um, if the landlord is insuring the not only the building, but tenants improvements, it would logically flow that in the casualty section, in the event of a casualty, if the lease is not terminated and there's restoration, that landlord is doing that restoration work. Um, and so if you're representing a tenant, you don't want to have you don't want to have an obligation to restore on stuff that you're not insuring because you're not going to have the proceeds from it. Um, same thing for the landlord. If, if, if the tenant is carrying the insurance on the uh, on the uh, alterations, you don't. The landlord's not going to want to have the restoration obligation. Um, a lot of this will 
depend on the type of use that your client has. And basically, I look at it when I'm doing, especially when I'm doing the, the tenant-based work, as who's, think about it logically, at least, in terms of who's doing the initial construction, who's doing the initial fit out of the space, uh, if it's office space or, or retail space or, or lab space or whatever it is. Um, if the landlord is delivering uh, the premises in a shell condition and the tenant is doing the build out, I think the, the logical place for me would be to say, maybe the tenant wants to be the one who's ensuring the alterations. And if there's a casualty, the casualty provision basically requires the landlord to restore back to the condition they delivered the space in, and tenant is required from that point to, to do the restoration work. If it's a turnkey approach, right, where the landlord is doing all the work, turning the space over to the tenant with the space complete, um, the other situation would, would seem to be more applicable. Landlord carries all the insurance, landlord gets the proceeds, a landlord does the restoration work, and then turns it over to the tenant. So, um, but again, out of sight, out of mind can sometimes lead to real problems there. You, you really, when you you read the insurance provision, you, you 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 your eyes may gloss over it. You may kick it, as you say, kick it to the to the all my client's risk management department, my client's insurance advisor will look at it. Um, and they may look at it and they may tell you, oh, yeah, we can carry this, we cover that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that risk manager probably won't go that second layer of then looking at the casualty section to make sure that those obligations there match the insurance section. And that's your that's your job, basically, is to is to make sure is to make sure you do it. And, and, and it's it's in my experience, it's not a it's not a contentious form of negotiation. It's it's more of making sure that you working with the other attorney are properly um, allocating those risks so that you've um, you, you risks and obligations so that you've got them covered. Um, I don't know, Andy, what if, if you've got experience on that perspective on it? Absolutely, and I I think it's something we deal with on a fairly frequent basis. Um, the reality is that after that casualty loss, everyone's going to go scurrying to examine the documents that apply. So there is going to be an assessment as to where did the responsibilities lie. We want to make sure that we've seen the document and we want to make sure we know the provision so that we can set it up with our client. And you are correct, Andrew. If they've got responsibility for improvement and betterment, we should be adding that coverage to their policy. If it is all on the landlord, fine. Um, but we try to track along with the lease to make sure that our coverage that we are providing is going to respond in the way we want it to respond. So that when there is a trigger, when there's a covered loss, we want our named insured, and that's an important legal term within the insurance contract, to be protected for the value they've lost, along with their mortgagee or lost pay interests. The second thing, again, improvements and betterments, very important. We do have everything that you've described. We have landlords doing the fit out. We have tenants doing fit out. We've just seen every different iteration of that that is out there. So we do want to make sure that we're tracking it as closely as possible. And if there is a transfer of obligation, if the landlord does make the tenant somehow responsible for something that the tenant does not legally own, we usually add the interest of the landlord to the policy along with the appropriate coverage because we just don't want the tenant to suddenly be responsible for something that the insurance policy is not going to respond to. So it's tricky. And we do try to follow the lease just as closely as possible. So getting back to what we said earlier, ambiguity is a real enemy. We don't want to see it there either any more than you guys want to see it. So we try to be careful and we try to be detailed. We try to make sure we understand what's going on. Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. reminder too. Oh, sorry, Andrew. I was just going to say, I think that's a good reminder too. If the tenant is going to assume ongoing re responsibility for maintenance, repair, and restoration after maybe the landlord's already done a turnkey, or if the tenant's occupying like a standalone part of a building or, or a whole part of a building, and then is basically doing triple net and, and covering everything for the landlord. Mm -hmm. Um, that was one thing that I always kind of struggle with uh, is like, wait a second, <laughs> how do we know that that 
tenant insurance policy is going to be able to cover 100% of the improvements here. And you can say it and you can write it down in a, in a sentence in a lease, but the process behind it where you're involving the insurance uh, team to look at it and and line up the insurance coverages appropriately, it's, it's just good for attorneys to know. So mm. they know that that is happening. Yeah. And Andy also touched on a, an, uh, another um, sort of concept to, to, to keep in mind, which is also at the end of the term, who who owns the improvements, basically, um, because that in the event that there's a casualty in a termination and, and there'll there'll be negotiation on that typically as to who gets to terminate the lease and when and, and, and tenants um, usually don't landlords forms don't usually start out with tenants having termination rights, but um, they can they can get them in certain circumstances. But if that lease is terminated, who gets the proceeds? Who's who's expected to get the proceeds? And and that ties to ownership of the of of the improvements, um, which can also in in certain instances, you know, if if the tenant is doing a um, and a, a very specialized fit out like a lab or or something where they're they're putting in their own money, not funded by TI dollars, um, and there's a termination in in an in advance of the scheduled termination due to a casualty, um, you know, a tenant can look at it and say, hey, well, wait a minute, um, you landlord, you've insured that space, but uh, but there's still value there on the table for me. This is an unjust enrichment for you. Um, so you'll see sometimes tenants coming back and saying, I want, I want some sort of unamortized um, uh, proportion of the proceeds. So yeah, I mean, the, these in, in abstract, hard to, uh, you know, hard to, to discuss, but things that um, that you may see pop up as you as you go through the process. Can we um, on that note, can we get into waivers of subrogation as one of those things that people conceptually maybe even struggle with, um, especially when the uh, waiver of subrogation provision is right next to the subordination provision, which is a completely different idea. But the oftentimes I see them side by side, and you, know, you don't want to be that young attorney or whatever who, who mixes those two terms up. Uh, but it happens. So, uh, Andrew, do you want to start us on what that is, and then Andy, can you tell us well how does the insurance actually work there, and then we'll hear from Natasha um, a little bit on this concept as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is um, subrogation, right? Is is one of these uh, terms that can make your eyes glaze over <laughs> when you start, when you start thinking about it as, as a young attorney um, and, you know, without being overly dramatic is really an incredibly important provision to have in the lease, irrespective of who you are, because without it, um, you can undermine the entire principle that I described of um, insurance being uh you know, a, a contractual way to pay a third party to assume uh, the risk of loss. And if you don't have a waiver of subrogation, you can be undoing that entire, the entire concept. In a nutshell, right, uh, uh, subrogation and, and a waiver of subrogation is, um, without a waiver of subrogation, the insurer would be able to step into the shoes of the damaged party and then bring a lawsuit against the other. So, you know, in the example of uh, uh, a tenant has insurance on its computers, and there's some form of casualty, and uh, it's covered. You know, it, it is required to be covered by the insurance. It is covered by the insurance. Uh, tenant looks to the insurance company to make it whole. Uh, if you do not have a waiver of subrogation, uh, the insurer after paying the tenant the claim, could then go to the landlord and say, I think this was your fault. I think that this, this burst pipe was due to your negligence. And um, and I'm stepping into the shoes of the uh, of the tenant and I'm suing you for it. And so if you're the landlord, you you do not want that to happen. That is that is defeating the purpose of insurance. And on the flip side, if you're the tenant, again, this is critically, critically important. If you can imagine being an office tenant, you know maybe you're a a, a five thousand square foot user in a in a building that's got a half a million 
or more square feet, um, some casualty in your space uh, that's covered by the landlord's insurance um, causes massive damage to the building. Um, you do not want to have the landlord's insurer uh, coming after you, the tenant, because of the fire that your toaster caused, or you know the 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 damage that 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 the sink overflowing in the bathroom caused. Uh, that can be an that can really literally be an exist, existential threat to the to the tenant. Um, if you're in a, you know, if you're in a, in a high value building. So that is, you know, making sure that you have a waiver of subrogation. And in my experience, it is, it is not a controversial, um, position to take. This is, this is, uh, uh something that, that insurers can and will do, and they will write into their policies, um, at, Andy can certainly uh, give you, I guess, the, the shop talk on it, but um, I've I've not I've not run into situations where somebody says to me, "I can't get away, I can't get my insurer to waive segregation." But Andy, I'll, I'll let you give your thoughts here. Yeah, I, Andrew, I would consider that to be a very rare situation. Uh, we normally can get waiver of subrogation quite readily, unless there is some extreme circumstance that makes it a very odd situation. So it is readily available. However, it does have to be put in place in advance of the claim. And that's kind of an elementary thing. But you cannot come back in most cases after the claim and waive that right of subrogation. So it's important that it be there in advance. And, you know, that that just one of the rules of the road. Um, so I, I would counsel everybody to be sure that they are uh putting that provision in, again, in advance of the possibility that a claim could occur. Um, it's just, you know, kind of elementary, but again, something I want to mention. Um, but it is readily available. One of the things I'll tell you, uh, really, there are two ways that waiver subrogation can be provided. It can be provided by a blanket, what we refer to as blanket waiver subrogation, which simply means that anytime you waive the right of subrogation in a written contract, that waiver will stick. The other way is to put blanket into a policy on a specific endorsement, naming a certain party. That's not so common anymore. It used to be kind of the standard way to do it. It's uh, it's dangerous to the policyholder to do it that way. Frankly, we would much rather see blanket where it is by written contract in any contract where you waive subrogation, it will stick. That's the way we would like to see it. So. Be careful. It's an important provision, but it is uh, something that is readily available. No, thanks, Andy. Um, and, and that is important. And I've heard that repeated by some other risk advisors on transactions as it needs to be in there first, um, but it can be provided. Um, so I think knowing that, um, you, you know, what the lease needs to say is Andrew described, but you also need to make sure somebody goes back and talks to the um, person working with the insurance company to make sure it's covered in the policy in advance. Um, Natasha, could you just um, shed a little bit of light on this? I think there was uh, there were maybe one or two cases you had told us about in terms of you know how the sure. courts respect this rule and how that would play out. Sure, thanks, Greg. So um, a little bit of background. An important in subrogation concept to know is that an insurer cannot recover from its own insured. So um, this is important when there are waivers of subrogations or there aren't to see, well, who is technically who's insured. So the SJC in 1999 um, confirmed that absent an express provision in a lease that a tenant is responsible for its own negligent loss, the landlord's insurance is considered to be held for the benefit of both the parties, both the landlord and the tenant. So in that case, the landlord's insurer could not recover money from or subrogate against the tenant without such an express carve out. Now, that was the Peterson versus Silva 428 Mass 751 case. That was actually in the residential context. Three years later, the SJC determined in a commercial context that Express provision requirement 
not quite the same. It should be read as what the entire lease says in terms of intent. So what the parties intended. So in that case, which was Seco versus Barbosa, which I'm going to just put on the screen for some language for some people. Let's see. How do I do this? Um, hold on just a second. Here we go. Okay. So this is the Seco insurance versus Barbosa case. So in 2002, the SJC distinguished that in a commercial context, the commercial tenancy did not need any express terms about whether a tenant is liable for its own negligent actions. And it said, looks essentially, as we learned in law school, you know, with the within the four corners of the lease for the terms of the intent. So what's interesting here is that um, the in the Seco case, there is a yield up clause, which talks about how the tenant is supposed to return the um, premises in what condition. And looking at this, it says the lessees, the defendants must return the property in its original condition or be liable for damages. The SJC determined because that clause lacks any exception, for fire damage, it implies that the party is intended that the defendants would be liable for their own neg negligently caused fire. So in that case, the landlord's insurance could try to subrogate against tenant because they would not be considered co-insured. Now, this has been applied recently in the Merrimack Mutual case which I will bring up. Um, this is a 2020 um, un, sorry, unpublished um, appeals court case that applies this Seco versus Barbosa um, looking to the intent idea. So in this case, um, this language, which is interesting, it's highlighted in green here. It had tenants insurance coverage, or I'm sorry, not that's not where I wanna look at. The yield up clause, unlike in Seco, had a very express um, exception for fire. So in this Merrimack Mutual fire case, I believe it was a um, bakery and the bakery tenant was accused of negligently starting a fire within its premises. So in that lease, it actually had a very specific carve out, reasonable wear and tear damage by fire accepted. So the court read that and saw the maintain and keep provision, which is requiring to maintain and keep the premises, reasonable wear and tear damage by fire accepted. Reading those two clauses together, the appeals court said, well, um, that means that there was intent for the landlord and tenant to be co-insured. Um, so the landlord's insurer could not recover um, because of this specific carve out. Um, and it's interesting because this is not helpful in the situation, but there were additional terms in the policy that, um, that, for example, ten, the tenant's insurance coverage was um, primary and limiting the landlord's fire damage repair obligations. But the problem is this was not brought up until the appeal level, since it wasn't brought up at the trial court level, the court did not make any decision on this. I mean, what I, what I hear when you describe what I would, I, I, I totally see why the court would reach that conclusion. But it frightens me a little bit because that language seems so standard in a way, but all the more reason to make sure the insurance provisions and the waiver of separation all tied together so that the parties aren't getting into a situation where their insurance companies are looking to get 
bailed out in the way and recoup some of the proceeds they've issued to their insured party. Um, but it is interesting to see in the world, let's say that, let's view those cases in the world where there is no clear waiver of subrogation clause um, and the courts are instead going to look at the yield up clauses of the lease. Maybe they should have, if it had been brought up properly before the court, they should have looked at the primary versus secondary, uh, the, the limitation on the landlord's liability to make repairs uh, following a fire, et cetera. Uh, maybe that would have tilted the case in a different way. But um, yeah, it, it's, it, it, I find these cases interesting and the way you describe them interesting because I think some of that language seems kind of boilerplate to me. And then to think that maybe the tenant is safe, but only by virtue of kind of odd language in the lease, protecting it from being sued by the landlord's insurance company and, and somehow making it a co-insured for, for purposes of construing the insurance. So I think that's just interesting to see and, and to remind us why it's so critical to make sure we're focusing on these other uh, commercial provisions that we just talked about. Um, and I'll put the case citations for anyone who's interested um, in the chat too. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, all right, so I think, you know, in a nutshell, to, to move on to the last couple parts of our presentation, um, waivers of subrogation, critical component, can be a little bit confusing. I think the more you talk about it and the more you maybe see it negotiated, the less confusing it is going to get and appear. Um, but it's still important for even the case that Natasha cited to make sure the, the allocation of um, risk, really, and, um, and that the insurance obligations are, are clearly spelled out in the lease. Um, I think on a similar note, the last part of uh, our discussion I'll focus on leasing is um, kind of like liability shifting issues. Andrew um, Kelly, you had kind of brought this up when we planned this out as something that you always scratch your head on. And I think Natasha has some thoughts uh, on this as well. So why don't you just give us a quick, maybe just a few minutes to, to wrap up this last part. Yeah. Of yeah, thanks, Greg. So, yeah, so I think that one of the, <laughs> one of the interesting uh, which may be a misnomer concepts here is that, as I said, you, you get the insurance, you get waiver or subrogation. Everybody's on, everybody's in accord there. Um, there are typically, as I said, some sort of a statement. Oftentimes, you'll see in lease a statement, for example, you know, all tenants' property is 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 you know at, at its own risk. Landlord's not going to be liable in the event of any damage from bursting pipes, et cetera, et cetera. And and you'll see a tenant come back and say, except it's except it's due to landlord's negligence. Or sometimes on the reverse, you'll see from a tenant side, landlord saying, I'm going to do all this maintenance and repair obligation unless it's due to the tenant's negligence. And my and this is not a universal, uh, this is not a universally held opinion, but it's my it's my opinion, uh, which is I step back and I say, wait a minute, guys. What are we doing here? Um, we've got the insurance. We've got each party contracting for it. We're paying premiums to an insurance company to to assume that risk. Um, and we've got a waiver of subrogation. That's where the buck stops. Um, so my counsel is that even though intuitively saying, carving out something and saying, except if due to the party's negligence, Again, on a sort of very intuitive or, or, or gut level, that seems right. You say, well, you caused it. You should be responsible for it. That's really, to me, antithetical to the concept that we've concepts we've been discussing about insurance and waivers of subrogation. So I would just counsel against um, if if you are in the, those situations, uh, and you see those those comments coming up or that line of reasoning, I would I would resist it. I would push back on it. And I would say this is this is not, you know, how does this work with waiver of subrogation? How does this work with insurance? And and why are why are we why are we undoing it in the case of of negligence? That's precisely why we've we've got it in the first place. That's why we've 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 got these risks insured in the first place. Um, so um those are those are my thoughts on it. Uh, I don't know what the, the the case law says. Yeah, Natasha, like, could could you get in the idea of um, sometimes I've heard and I can't cite it off the top of my head, but I think you could do it for us. It's just the idea of well, landlords can't like put too much or ex exempt themselves from uh, their own negligence or gross negligence. Why don't you shed some light on that idea? 
Yes. So actually that is um, recognized by statute in Massachusetts. Um, So that statute, and I'm going to pull it up so everyone can see the language. That statute is chapter 196, section 15. And that... states that it's basically it's illegal to shift responsibility for landlord's negligence onto the tenant so this this may seem it's i will admit no offense to the writers but this is so confusingly written um but it basically says it is not allowed for the landlord to shift their responsibility for their negligence onto the tenant um, so how does this come into play in practice? Well, the legality of lease requirements looking, uh, in conjunction with this statute was discussed in a 2010 SJC case called Norfolk and Dedham, uh, versus more, yeah, sorry, Norfolk and Dedham versus Morrison. And that case was interesting because there were two parts of the lease that there were questions about. So um, this was a trip and fall on the property. And the question was the terminology that a tenant would be solely responsible for personal injuries, except for those resulting from the sole negligence of landlord. Was that allowed under the statute? And the second question was, um, is it illegal under that uh, liability shifting statute to require the tenant to purchase liability insurance on behalf of the landlord? So in this Merrimack Mutual case, which I will pull up, I'm sorry, Norfolk and Dedham Mutual, Merrimack was the previous one. In this case, there was interesting language where let's see okay so the tenant is solely responsible language stated they would hold the landlord harmless from liability for injuries and property damage arising out of the use or condition of the lease premises except for injuries that directly result from the negligence of the lessor, aka the landlord. So that that part is okay. So the first part is the problematic part where it says that, where is it? Here we go. That um, the lessee shall be solely responsible except for damage resulting from the sole negligence of lessor. So the court said, well, if there is only the situation of sole negligence, what about when both parties are negligent? If the landlord's a little bit negligent and the tenant is negligent? The court found that this phrase in the lease was illegal under chapter 186, section 15, void uh, by public policy and the statute, because in the situation where there is shared liability, that is still shifting liability of the landlord for its own actions onto the tenant, even though it's not fully onto the tenant. So that was not allowed to uh, stay. The second part of um, the lease they were looking at was the indebt, excuse me, the uh, requirement to purchase liability insurance, the requirement for the tenant to purchase liability insurance on behalf of the landlord. Now, at first blush, you might think, well, that kind of sounds like shifting the responsibility, just like you're not supposed to do under the statute, but actually the court differentiated in that this 
shifting of the responsibility is a private contract. It's a contract between two parties where they're agreeing to shift something, but it prevents the issue that the statute protects against, which is nobody wants the tenant to be saddled with the landlord's negligent actions. In the case where tenant has to buy insurance on behalf of the landlord, the SJC said, no, it's not um, shifting it to the tenant, but it's rather shifting it towards to the tenant's insurer, which is okay. So the sole negligence carve out was something that I don't know if that's common in leases anymore, but that is something that is void by public policy, but the requirement to purchase insurance is not. And I, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. It's, it's, it's a very nuanced point. Um, I think that it is, it is worth distinct distinguishing as it's written. And as I understand it, it is, the statute is a statement that the landlord cannot require the tenant to indemnify the landlord for its negligence, which is a, a little bit different from saying the landlord can't require a tenant to insure its own property and, and be in and to look to its insurance for the damages to its property. I mean, we're talking about here, um, you know, uh, in, in these in these cases, personal injury caused by the landlord's negligence, and and in uh, the statute essentially saying no, the tenant cannot be forced to indemnify the landlord for its own negligence from a third party claim, um, which is you know again is a. Um, is a different scenario from a pipe bursting in a ceiling and, and, and ruining the, the, the party's equipment and who covers that. I mean, that, that that's that's not an indemnity that we're look, we're talking about there. But those are that is a um that is a a, a worthwhile distinction. Um but in the broken mind. pipe case, that could be something that you'd consider, you know, sole responsibility of the landlord. So under um under the Norfolk and Dedham lease, that part was okay in that the, the, the landlord still would be liable for its sole negligence. But if there's a mix with, you know, landlord not keeping the pipes and the tenant hanging something from the pipes that causes it to break, that is where the tenant cannot be required to mm -hmm. take all of the liability on. Right. Well, um, we have a few minutes left. I know we still have a pretty good audience here. Um, it's been quiet with questions. If anyone wants to type questions in, I would say start doing it now. Um, we have about six minutes left. Um, I think for just a few minutes, Andy and I, were going to uh, uh, go proceed to the next phase, which is let's assume the lease was successfully negotiated by Andrew Kelly and opposing counsel. And um, the, the tenant is in there paying rent and the landlord now wants to finance that asset. So there isn't as much to talk about, admittedly, on the loan front, which is why we made this the last part of our presentation. But there is some kind of technical language stuff. Um, anyone who's received a loan agreement or sometimes a mortgage uh, to supplement the loan agreement will have fairly detailed insurance requirements. A lot of lenders have boilerplate insurance requirements. I feel like the bigger the lender, the more boilerplate -y their requirements are and the less willing they are to bend on them. So I think the exercise really becomes, Andy, uh, the borrower team working with their insurance and risk advisors to make sure they can satisfy the lender's requirements and seeing if they need to purchase anything additional. And then second piece is, as Andy can get into, the lender will require evidence of the insurance being carried. It's a condition to closing. Uh, closings, let's say they're 30 to 60 day timeframes for traditional term financing. Um, you don't want the borrower team to realize three or four days from the, before the closing date that they haven't reached out the insurance team yet and that no certificates of insurance have been prepared. So, Andy, if you could give us just a little bit on terms of what's the language that a lender typically wants to see um, in terms of its benef benefited status under the existing policies that the landlord's carrying, and B, what process um, goes into issuing certificates of insurance? And I think you you and your team may do that from time to time on the benefit of your clients. Yeah, we, we sure do, Greg. 
really language wise, uh, we follow essentially to the letter what the lender is acquiring. And, and they're usually very specific about what they're looking for. Uh, very often, of course, you're dealing with the uh, the suffix, uh, its successors and or assigns as their interest may appear. Very common. We do it all the time, all the time, all the time. That's just guaranteeing that if there's a succession of ownership of the actual lender interest, it will follow that succession of ownership. So no problem at all with that. As far as documentation, um, the term certificate is used generally, but we do issue three different types of what we refer to as proof of insurance. We do issue certificates, absolutely. They are usually used for liability, meaning uh, third-party uh, liability. We also issue evidences of, evidences of insurance for property coverage. That's hmm. the most common document that we're asked for uh, on a closing. And thirdly, we issue binders. I will caution everybody. A binder is a 30-day document. They are no, there's no validity beyond 30 days on a binder if the binder has not been renewed or replaced by an insurance policy. So if you receive a binder, you are on a time clock. It is only good for 30 days, and you should be looking for a replacement if the policy has not been issued. So those three documents, yes, Greg, all the time. We're issuing those on a daily basis. For closings, we're issuing them all the time. Certificates, evidences, and binders. And. Um... And the binder thing is interesting because you do see that come up a lot. Um, another issue that I see come up a lot is just making sure the magic language is being used in addition to the, um, the Adama language, as you went out, the successors and signs language. There's different categories of status that can be given to a mortgage lender. I think there's additional insured on some policies. There's a lender loss pay, I think, or mortgagee yep. loss pay. And if you could just give us one minute on the nuances there and is there any type of status we do not want the lender to end up receiving because it actually won't give them all the benefits they would ordinarily expect? We see those all. Uh, the mortgagee is certainly common. Um, that gives the mortgage holder rights uh, that actually supersede the rights of the name insured. Yeah. So um, very common. And and when you're closing real property, absolutely essential. Lost payee, um, you see it all the time. It is being replaced now by lender's loss payee because lender's loss payee is much like the mortgage interest in that it uh, will supersede and uh, continue after the coverage may be invalidated by the policyholder. So lo lender's loss payee is much more common in this day and age. The two, So those are the two, mortgagee and lender's loss payee we see pretty much all the time. The rest of them, loss payee is falling away a little bit. There was some question about cancellation too. And yeah. I mean, again, we follow the terms that are required by the lender. Very common, it's 3010, 30 days cancellation for any reason, but non-payment of premium. Non-payment of premium is kind of bolted in at 10 days. We can get that extended sometimes, but that requires some push with the carrier. Yeah, well, I, I, I was happy to hear you mention that a few weeks ago because it actually came up on a document I was negotiating for a lender client, and I saw that the borrower's counsel had come back with 10 days rather than 30 days for, for that particular um, yeah. notice requirement. And I decided, you know what, <laughs> I'll live with 10 days and uh, didn't want to make the borrower run around and try to get their carrier to change that standard bold language. So, yep. um, but that is obviously notices that are sent to the lender by the insurance carrier critical importance to the lender and maintaining their security interest. Because as Andrew Kelly mentioned earlier, uh, if the property is significantly damaged and impaired, the lender may need to look to the proceeds issued by the insurance company to recoup some of its loss and to effectively pay down the principal balance of the loan. Um, not all lenders really want to do that, but it at least gives them some leverage and a seat at the table if something catastrophic happens and you're nearing the maturity date on the loan. So. Um, so I think, you know, I know we only spent uh, about seven or eight minutes on loan matters. Um, anybody in the audience who had a particular interest in that part of the presentation can obviously follow up with me. Um, I think Andy's information is available on the BBA website, but um, people can reach out to me or Andrew uh, for Andy and his firm's contact info. Again, he's at Dylan Gibson. 
based out of, I think Wellesley's their primary office, but they have other offices mm -hmm. as well. Um, Natasha's over at Dane Torpy, and um, obviously I think Natasha, now your focus is a little more land UC and litigation focused, but you have that background in insurance as well. And thank you for sharing those cases with us today showing us the dark side of when leases are maybe not adequately drafted to cover all contingencies and you have to get into that boilerplate language and see how it shakes out. Um, I'd just like to thank Andrew Kelly again for being a, a great co-host and um, planning this out with me and the rest of the team. And Caitlin, back to you. Yeah, I'll just give one last thanks. Thank you to everyone, the participants and speakers. Um, hope everyone has a great rest of their afternoon. Thank Perfect. you all. Thank you. Take care.